Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Gordon Raphael. Gordon was a producer of the Strokes debut album, This Is It, and also produced the second album, Room On Fire, and was initially going to record the third album until he was replaced. We spoke about this, plus we spoke about Regina Spector, who he also produced, and we touched on his early life growing up and touring with the Libertines. Gordon's had a long and varied career. He's travelled all over the world producing for all sorts of bands from Seattle, Paris, Madrid, Cape Town, Lima, Mexico City, Buenos Aires. He's been everywhere and he's now settled in Hebden Bridge. So we spoke about all his career and then at the end Gordon picked his heroes to come for dinner. Gordon's book, The World Is Gonna Love This, is out on the 2nd of July. You can pre-order it on his website and I'll post links. I hope you all enjoy this episode and I will be back again soon with another one. Thanks. So, Gordon Raphael, thank you for coming on the Time for Heroes podcast. Um, Famous for producing the Strokes albums and Regina Spector, amongst lots and lots of other bands. But what I like to do at the start is just go back to the start, your early life growing up, and how that was for you and how that shaped you. Okay. Well, um, let's see. I grew up in Seattle, um, and I lived in an area that was surrounded with trees and mountains and really, really nice, except for it rained all the time. So it was a very good place. Uh, to practice piano and listen to records and start thinking about music. And my dad was a jazz musician, but I didn't like jazz at all. I was really getting into rock and roll and the Beatles and the Stones and Jimi Hendrix kind of set the template for me. And I started joining bands when I was about 13 and just never looked back. Right. What sort of bands are you in? Because obviously Seattle was famous for the grunge scene back then. So was it that type of music you were playing then? Well, really, you know, um, I go back a couple generations of music before the grunge scene. I was, I was there during the grunge scene and it was a phenomenal time. Uh, But I just started when kind of when psychedelic rock was Mm -hmm. happening and uh, that kind of thing. And so that was my first kind of live music playing electric organ in psychedelic rock bands. Right. Uh, and as you say, you were, you were in quite a few bands back then. So what, what made you, what, what put you into producing rather? What forced well, you that? At a certain point, I realized that I needed to write my own music. And I thought that if I could learn how to record stuff that I would write with the tape recorder. And so um, a friend of mine showed me how he had done his music on a four track reel to reel tape recorder. And I thought that's what I needed to do. I didn't want anybody in the room with me, like watching me sing or learn how to play the guitar. I just wanted to be by myself. And so for me, learning how to record was the gateway to my artistic expression and to learn how to write and make my own music. Right. So you were big into your piano, keyboards type stuff, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Synthesizers. And then 
where did this art bodice thing come in? It came in when I was about 18 years old. I got asked, I passed an audition and I got asked to join the best band in our city. And they said, if you want to join our band, you need to have a, a minimum amount of equipment and we need you to have this ARP Odyssey synthesizer was among one of them. Mm -hmm. So I got this thing and it took me a long time to figure it out. It has all these knobs and buttons and no memory, not like no computer memory. You have to just do everything from scratch and use it live on stage and go from one sound to the next, from one song to the next. It was a huge learning curve. But at a certain point, I had a giant breakthrough and this thing became indispensable, like a real creative tool. Because mm -hmm. you're, you're famous for it, aren't you? I, I can't think of MDL as, as famous as yourself for it's only it's, it's only because I talk about it all the time. Like I just mention it all the time. Even today, I'm working on a series of videos showing some crazy sounds I could make with it. Um, one of the best things I did was I worked with an amazing band in Mexico called Phobia. Mm -hmm. And they had heard that I'm pretty good with the synthesizer. And they asked me especially to bring it in a hard shell case on an airplane to Mexico to play it on every song on their record. And that was really great because I was actually being recognized for this other skill other than just producing. And it was also interesting because when I got to the Mexico airports, these security guards who looked like soldiers looked at this big box and said, what's in there? And I showed them my synthesizer. I said, what do you need that for? And I said, well, I'm going to make some sounds with it. And they looked very puzzled, but there was that great moment with these soldiers looking at my ARP Odyssey, questioning me about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it must turn heads because it, it's completely different for anything else um, about and that. So, obviously, is, is this, we touched on grunge a little bit. So, did you end up in any type grunge bands? Well, by the time grunge had come, I had run away from Seattle because it was That's such it, it was such a fishing village. You know, there was like all about hunting and fishing and there was like nothing going on. You know, no bands could ever make it. And all of a sudden, Mudhoney comes and Tad and Nirvana and it's really kicking off. Mm -hmm. So at the time I was living in I was living in New York when the first bit of it happened, like when Mudhoney went on their first tour of UK. I saw that blowing on the ground in a sounds newspaper that was uh, from England that was in the East Village. And then the next year I moved to Los Angeles and I was actually living there when Pearl Jam came through and Allison Chains came through and I'm going, oh my God, if this is what's going on in Seattle, I got to get back there right now and get part of it. Right. And I got back there and I joined a band called Sky Cries Mary and we got a record deal and went touring and it was an incredible band. But I, and how long did that last? I was there for seven years with that group. Right, and brilliant. It's actually interesting because we were not a grunge band per se. We had a DJ in our band and I played electronic keyboards and we had a light show, like a psychedelic 60s light show. And we were kind of called tribal space rock. But... Right. Everyone in our town loved us. Like we played the biggest venues and even the people in the big bands liked our music. And so it was really fun. Right. At that point, then you, you ended up in New York again. 
Yes, I did. So when you when you went back to New York, what was the New York scene like initially? Um, the New York scene was like there was uh, on Ludlow Street, there were clubs up and down the road. And there were some rock bands playing at Mercury Lounge and Luna Lounge and Arlene's Grocery. Mm-hmm. But by and large, it had gone into this acid jazz scene where in all the clubs, it was like DJs playing this really mellow electronic music. And uh, that's kind of what was taking over New York by the time I got there. New- rock and roll was really on the way out of fashion. Let's right. say and that. When would that be? What, what year are we talking we're talking about, I moved there in 98. So that's right. like two years before I met the Strokes. I moved there and I started like becoming a producer. Right. Because, I mean, obviously, two years before you met the Strokes. So the Strokes came out and we had um, Interpol and Ryan Adams. There was, there was there were hundreds of New York stuff going on. So yeah. that just kind of bubbling away under the, the surface at the, the time. For me, it seemed to be very much in the background. All that rock music was really in the background in New York until there became a buzz in London and the UK about it. Like when the, when the UK started talking about, well, the Strokes and even Rough Trade signed the Strokes. Um, it had a lot to do with, and then New York's going, whoa, uh, there's something happening. And it, the scene kind of recognized itself after some of the success that happened overseas. Yeah, because I mean, we were desperate for for good music because there was there was nothing happening here either. It was all kind of safe, kind of acoustic guitar stuff or limp biscuit. That seemed to be the the big things back then until until obviously the, the Strokes broke through. Yeah. Um, I mean, you- if you look at the top, if you look at the top music of that year in the U.S., it was also like nothing to do with what came later. That's for sure. But obviously, on this podcast, I've I've had lots of, I've had lots of different band members. I've had people for the Paddingtons, uh, the Holloways, lots lots of different people. Las Vegas, things like that. And the common theme is the Strokes and how. It changed music and everybody was a fan of the strokes and that's why they all picked up guitars. So I mean what was it like for you then when you when you first met them and what what was your initial thoughts on them? Well when I first met them and they came to my studio like I was really uh I was really impressed because their music reminded me of the stuff that I listened to and all my friends listened to in Seattle growing up, you know, things like the Stooges. And um, like, and I thought, who talks about the Stooges in the year 2000? Like, that's the furthest thing from anybody's mind. And these guys are kind of referencing that in their energy. And I thought it was very in a way misguided and misplaced like you guys are a little bit late to the party and nobody's really interested in this kind of music that was my real first impression when i was recording them i i thought they were really good and they seemed so dedicated but i didn't understand how even this music would have got down to their generation it wasn't even popular in my generation you know because mm-hmm. they brought me on a like just the initial picture of them. Remember the first NME cover? Yeah. A picture of them in New York. And 
for seeing that, it got me into the Ramones because I'd seen pictures of the Ramones and they looked similar. So, so down to the strokes, it got me into punk, punk music like that. So I, I don't know if they realised that the touching points that they were, they were setting themselves and setting the fans, but they were, they were a huge influence in every day over here. How how did it come about for you producing them? Did they ask you, or did you approach them? What was it? Well, moving from Seattle to New York was a shock because it was so much more expensive to live in New York. So I was basically out every night looking for bands to record just to like kind of stay alive and pay my rent and stuff. So I saw them play, and I had a little business card, and I went up and I said, "Hey, I make really good demos. Come to my studio." And uh, they came. That's how that's how we met. I, I, I kind of started talking to them after they played a small show in New York. Right. And did, did the relationship flourish pretty quickly then? Um, I would say so. I would say so. First, they sent Albert over to check out my studio and he liked what it looked like. Uh-huh. It was a very, it was like underground. It was like a, in a basement in New York City and it was very well decorated. Like it looked like a place artists would be comfortable. It didn't look very corporate. It wasn't super professional, but it was, had a good atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so he liked the studio and that brought the band in. And then pretty soon they realized that I wasn't going to take advantage of them. And I wasn't going to try to pull an expert trip on them because I was older than them or something like that. They actually, we actually worked quite well as a team and we made that uh, EP, The Modern Age. Uh-huh, which was, I mean, that was kind of the, the breaking point when it, that was, that came out. And I'm trying to think when the White Stripes came out, he's one of the far behind one another, because I can remember yeah. the White Stripes was played on John Peel. I mind wow. him twice in a row. Um, and it was just, it was so refreshing to hear all this new music coming. Yes. So, obviously, you produced the first album as I sat. Yeah. Was that then just off the back of the modern age? You were happy with what you'd done there? Yeah. And asked yeah. you to, to, do, to, to do the album. So, yeah. how was how fans producing the album? What's this, what's this sort of role of a producer, per se? Because I'm... I like music, but I, I know nothing about producing music. So, Well, just like there's all kinds of bands, there's all kinds of producers. Mm-hmm. Um, be- because I come to music as a musician and an artist and a composer, I my idea of what a, a producer should do is listen carefully to young musicians and find out what it is that they're trying to do and help them achieve their vision. So my idea as a producer is to help these young musicians achieve their vision. I don't, I don't try to second guess them or tell them a better thing to do. I let them try out their ideas. And if they have some questions, I answer it. And I'm just there to kind of provide a very comfortable and encouraging experience for them so that they can walk out with the music that they had in their mind and kind of smile. That's, that's how I do it. Because obviously Julian particularly strikes me as kind of, he knows what he, he wants. Yes. So were they, were they pretty driven or was it was it Julian leading it? 
Or uh, was that a bat through all of them? To be honest with you, um, I had the impression that every single member of the band and their guru, J.P. Bowersock, they all were focused as hell and they all had ideas and they all kind of participated together equally, really. Yeah. Because it, it, it sounds pretty pretty much like live. So was, was it, how was it recorded? Was it kind of one take type stuff? It was definitely not one take stuff, but most of the music, most of the instruments were done live for sure. All at the same time playing together like a band and there was no overdubs and no extra stuff put on there. No reverb, no effects. Um, it was just all just what, what they played is what you hear. Mm. Which is odd, because like, obviously I must have been into music for about 15 years prior to this, and just something as normal as just a, a, a group of guys playing in a room together, it sounded so different for anything else, because obviously everything else for so long had been overproduced. So, uh, Yes, yes. Uh, it was a revolutionary, like people just didn't know what that sound was. It was like it came from Mars or something. What is that? And I say, it's actually the sound of people playing in a small room together. <laughs> and they go, oh, wow. <laughs> and and that's, and as we say, then that kick-started so much. As I mentioned <laughs> briefly, obviously the Libertines and the Vines, you had the Hives, you had... Um, you had, you had all sorts going on. You had all the, the white stripes. You had so much coming for Europe, so much in Britain, and, and so much for America, and even as far as Australia. So that that sort really came for for that album. Did so, you did you ever see Did you ever see the Datsuns? Yes, Harmonic they, Generator. They were, I was listening to that just the other day. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean they didn't really. I think I can remember like the first two albums. I don't know what happened after that. It kind of just died away. Who knows? Who knows? But I mean, there was just so much, and it 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 was after having Travis and Coldplay and things like that for so long to have all these new, fresh, young, skinny, cool-looking kids. It was it was amazing to see. So. Um, when did the tour then with Libertines and the Vines come about? Was that in between the two albums? Um, after Is This It happened, I moved to London and I became friends with the Libertines and they asked me to run sound on their first tour. So they had two shows on that tour with the Strokes um, and they also had a whole section of that tour opening for the Vines. Right. And it was really the first time I got to actually travel in the UK too. So I got to see Brighton and Liverpool and um, Nottingham and all these places, Birmingham and all these places I'd never been before. I got to like at least visit them. And what was your initial thoughts on the Libertines? What did you find today? Oh, well, um, when I actually stepped in a room and heard them at a rehearsal, I thought they were just phenomenal, like absolutely jaw-droppingly good. Um, Gary's drumming just blew my mind how good he was and their songwriting and all the vocal harmonies and the, the energy of the band was impeccable, 
really, when I first met them. That's the thing. Like, I've already speaks about Gary's drumming, but at the time, you kind of, nobody really, it was all the kind of circus of Pete and Carol, so nobody really noticed what was going on in the background. But if you look at Gary now, he kind of, still, even now, he holds the band together. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what was it like then, touring with, with the, the, those three bands? Because, I mean, obviously, the Vines must have been wild. Like, Craig Nichols was off the, the scale. I don't know. You know, I was already pretty much riding a giant high from producing Is This It and the reaction that I, that people were giving to that record. And um, in the UK especially, it was like ground zero for Strokes fandom. So it was an incredible time period. And then to be landed with the Libertines and traveling and touring, to be honest, I thought it was on, basically it felt like I was on top of the world at that, that particular moment. It was an incredible rock and roll adventure. Mm. And were you asked to um, produce the Libertines? Was, uh, yeah, yeah they, they, they definitely um, wanted me to produce something for them in the early days. Right, and what happened with that then? I don't know. I, I wanted to do it, and uh, I thought I was going to do it, and then one day it just happened that they said, it's, it's not happening. It's, we can't do it. And I don't know why. I never found out why. I just, I was very sad about it, but I just kind of went on about my business. I mean, that would have been excellent to hear like a, a Liberty's yeah. album produced with Gordon Raphael. That would be like I, would have, I, would have, I would have liked to have heard the first album done by me. <laughs> um, so when did we come out of Room and Fire? When did, was that your next kind of... I had one one more bit of magic happen around that same time period before Room on Fire, which okay. was I met Regina Spector. Right. And I had the blessed opportunity to record her first her album called Soviet Kitsch. Well, I listened to it this morning. Oh and I don't understand why it took me well, 20 odd years to, to listen to Regina Spector because I've, I've heard her, I've, I know who she is, but up until this morning, I thought I'm going to have a listen to that album and it's it's amazing. Yeah, um, it's, it's something special. Yeah, it's got a lot of kind of British influences, I think. Like, kind of, she sounds like a mixture of Kate Nash and Laura Marlin, but right, obviously. Didn't those, those people came after her though? Yeah, well that that's the thing. That's that's what I, I worked that out and I thought, how how does that happen? So obviously they sounded like her. But mm. obviously for me, for my touching points, that that's where I'm putting it back to. Yeah. Um and obviously it's a totally different sound for the strokes. It's it's piano led. Yes. Um, is were you happy with that then? Obviously you with your background for piano. Yeah, my background of piano and also my background of really crazy music uh, prepared me to be blown away by Regina. She she was a master of the piano and her lyrics and her storytelling are on another dimension, really. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I was really, really impressed with it. It's it an amazing album and I'll definitely be checking out all her other stuff because... Um, 
a list. Once the album finished, it goes on to shuffle. So you got another yeah. couple of songs, and I, it was all it was all cracking. I, I I can't believe that I've waited all this time to hear her. I'm glad it's, you did though. Yeah, so that's me. I'm a fan. So obviously, then we had Room on Fire. Then Room on Fire came into Which, being. Um, you were brought in halfway through, weren't you? No, then, I was I was brought in. Um, I mean, I did the whole album. Uh, they started. They tried a different producer. I think is that true? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. They tried a different producer at the beginning, but I, I I recorded the whole album. So, so what was your thoughts then? See, when they they went with a different producer to start with, what was your thoughts then? Because did you think you were getting the gag anyway? I thought for sure that I would never like they would be really happy with the other producer, and they would they would realize you know, how much better he is than me. And uh, I felt a little bit, you know, sad again because of that. But then I was very happy when they called me back. Right. And what was the reason for that? Were they just not happy with the sound? Yeah, I think at that point, you know, they're always, they're always looking for something that they have in their mind. And if they're not getting it, they don't mess around. They just like, you know, bam, we're, we're not, this is not it. Let's go somewhere else. Because, I mean, it's such a good second album as well. I mean, you, you could put both those albums together and it, it, it's a big, massive album. It's like, there's no a bad song in either of the two albums. So true, true, true. Both the albums together are, are classics. And what a lot of bands struggle with is the second album. So do you think them going back to kind of a similar style for the first, do you think that helped? Um, I know that they struggled. I mean, they struggled on both albums. They struggled on the first album because they had a chance to prove themselves and they wanted to like do the best job possible. So they were very hard on themselves. And for the second one, it was like, you know, are we going to be able to match the success of the first? And they were worried about how people wouldn't, would take it and they had a whole the sophomore album stress mm-hmm. of just trying to make sure it was going to live up to the reputation because I've, like, I've thought about this quite a lot obviously let's see like how all the bands seem to struggle with the second album and a lot of it must be to do with pressure for the record company that you, you need to do that you need to get something out quick is, do you think there's any kind of benefit in kind of recording the first album and then recording the second album before the first album's out? Uh, do you think you could do that and then kind of just release them like maybe a year apart and then then, then after that, then you kind of go away and rethink the wheel then? I don't know. Uh, most bands, they rec- they make a batch of songs and then they test them out on the audience. Mm -hmm. And then after they got refined from the tests with the audience then they go in the studio. And I think that it, I think it takes too much time. I don't think it'd be hard to have two sets of music ready. Like, I think it would take years to do that. I think it's pretty natural the way it is now. Right. You know, I I think, I think it it makes sense. There's me, I thought I was reinventing the wheel, but it shot down. Yeah. I, also, I think that after a band has gone in the studio and worked and the rehearsed, recorded, mixed, 
mastered i think they're just that's like a mental that's a huge mental like uh uh weight lifting you know it's major olympics for their for their mind and body i don't think they want to then do it again right away they need a little year two year break mm-hmm. so what was a what was the production like on that then was it pretty similar to the it was very, very similar, except for the first record was done in my studio. And by the time we did the second album, I didn't have I wasn't living in New York anymore and I didn't have my studio. So we used a different studio, which was actually much bigger and more classy. And so it became a challenge to try to get the same vibe in a bigger studio. Right. And what was obviously but the band were massive me this point as well so it was was there any challenges in working with them then because it was uh bigger egos and stuff like that no there was no there was no ego issues in either of the records i worked on with them that, that was not a factor but there was a positive factor in the sense that they had probably played 200 shows in between album one and album two and they got tighter and they were better and they could play better. And it, they were just more powerful musicians on the second album. And that was like amazing to record. Have you, have you worked with any other bands you think that, that kind of works as well together as, as those five guys? Probably so. Probably so. I mean, I've never I've never worked with a band that had the dynamic that they do. They have a certain dynamic with each other, at least in the in the days that I worked with them. They were very young, but they had a very mature relationship with each other in in terms of communication and in terms of cooperation. Um, And so I think that was very rare. And I haven't seen that kind of dynamic and some of the communication skills they have. But I've worked with a lot of bands that have incredible chem- chemistry and, uh, you know, in, in their own way. Right. So, obviously, going forward, was there anything else then in between Room on Fire and First Impressions of Earth? Well, I, uh, by that time, I moved to, I was in London and I had my own band and we were doing concerts. I had a club night. Uh, mm-hmm. with Toby L from Transgressive. We had right. the, big, the basement club in Islington. And what else? I had my own record label for a little while. So I was producing bands left and right and having a great time in London. Right. Because obviously, I mean, going further forward, obviously, like you've traveled all over the world and produced all these different bands. I've got here America, Britain, France, Belgium, Spain, Germany. South Africa, Mexico, Peru, Argentina, you've been everywhere. And I've pro- I'd imagine I've probably missed places out as well. So, yeah, I mean, you've had such a busy career and obviously you're famous for the strokes, but you've, you've had such a long career and you've yes. probably been, it's a good 15 years really, isn't it, for you, you did any work with the strokes. But yeah. Yes. That's that's still what you're famous for. Um, yes. Obviously, so first impressions of Earth came out, and you got halfway through that one, then didn't you? What was well, it? 
maybe, well, I, I spent a year working on the demos with them. Uh-huh. And then I probably only lasted a couple of months. I don't know. It seems like a couple of months uh, when they actually started recording it. And then they brought in a different producer. Right. And what, what was the reason behind that? Because obviously for, for your part, because you wouldn't be able to tell me for, for them, maybe. But I mean, it's still, it's still got the stroke sound, which at that point I would have thought is a Gordon Raphael sound. So. Mm-hmm. What was, what was the reasons they, they told you for, for going a different route? Um, they, they, just like what happened before, um, they had a certain, they had a different sound in their mind mm-hmm. and uh, they thought that they would use a different producer that could help them achieve that. And it's actually, if you listen to First Impressions, it's a very different sounding record to the ones that I have made. Like right. son- sonically speaking, well, you know, it sounds a bit heavier at times. And the thing with that is, there was bits of it that I got that sounded a bit like the grunge, mm. which, which then I thought, well, that must be Gordon's influence being for Seattle, mm. but then so it wasn't. No, that that's really funny. It's odd that, isn't it? To, I do know that they like a couple of those Seattle bands. Right. It just, it just seems odd that, that was with that kind of sound, but it's no, it wasn't you that was that was doing it. It's still yeah. a, I mean, it's still a really impressive album. A lot of people kind of slated it, said it wasn't as good, but I mean, I, I think other albums are good. I, I've, I play them more regularly. I like other yeah. stuff right, right up until now. Um, so you're, I mean, you're still close with the band, though, aren't you? I wouldn't say close. I'm still, we have warm feelings for each other. Still you know, I only see them, like, if I go to a city where they're playing a show and I'll go see them at their show or something and hang out with them. But right. they're, they're definitely on their own path and I'm on my own. So, that I mean, that leads us on uh, your solo stuff. You were working on stuff when you, you met the Strokes, weren't you? Yeah. That, that didn't get released until well after uh, you finished work with them. So was that kind of, was that a wee niggling thing in your head that you had stuff that you wanted to get out and you had been put in the back burner for so long? Well, to be honest, I've been writing music since I was about 18 and I still really haven't released anything properly. I mean, Nobody in the world can tell you a song by Gordon Raphael, even though I've written about a thousand, you know, and Uh it's something it's very I think it's very funny and strange. And I think about it all the time. And I'm always working on trying to get my music out. You know, I'm always trying to do it. And it's just one of those things so far. Because I mean, your website, I was on your website. Yeah. Well, I've been on your website the last couple of days and obviously you get. You do art as well. You get a lot of art on it, yeah. um, photography and stuff like that. I, the website's really good, and that—that's probably the best place to to find your music and find out about you. Really, it's I think yeah. it's my website. My website's called gordotronic.com, and it's the only place in the world that where my music is, and my artwork, and my videos, and all my creative stuff is there. And I really like that website. It is very complicated and very deep, 
but that's fine. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, you could be on it for hours. There's so much different stuff to to look at and listen to. Um, I'll, obviously, I'll put a link to it on, on the show notes so people cool. can check it out. Hebden Bridge then. So how long have you been in Hebden Bridge? Came in uh, December 2019. So however long ago that is. And most of the time I've been here, it's been locked down. So I haven't really gone anywhere. Right. Because I mean, it's for, for somebody that's travelled the world as, as much as you have to kind of to settle in Hebden Bridge for now, it seems yeah. mad. Um, <laughs> when it, there's a band playing there the, a couple of weeks' time, a Scottish band, the Snuts. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're, they're playing um, the Trades. The wow. Trades in the 13th of May. Really good band. I should check them out. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they've had a, their debut album. I think their debut album got to number one last year. Wow. Uh, yeah, you should you should go and check them out and try and meet them and uh, ask them if they want a producer for the second album. Good idea. Um, the Trades is a national treasure as far as a gig venue is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's what I want. That's what I want to hear next is a Gordon Raphael produced Snuck's album. Okay, I'm going to try. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you got your your solo work that you can find on the the website. But coming next, you got a book coming out, haven't you? Yes, it's true. Yeah. That this is coming out when the second of July is that correct? Second of July, it's going to be released. There's pre-orders now, and I've got a book launch party coming up at Rough Trade East in London right. on the 14th of June. So the book is really ready to pop now. Right, and this is going to be about what is this going to be about your career? It's it's about me, and it uh, centers on how I got to New York and I met the Strokes and what happened and how we made all the records and what happened to them and what happened to me. And then, yeah, all these different adventures centered around that. And how did you find the time to, to write this? We, we all well, the other I stuff, you know, and was that, did this come up for, for the lockdowns? Yes, exactly. I always wanted to write that book, but I never thought I would really do it because I like to move around. Mm-hmm. And once I was forced to sit still, I said, okay, I got an unknown quantity of time where I can't go anywhere. So let's get that book going on. And it was a perfect time to get that thing finished. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. The, the, the other book that I've, the other good book I've got for New York is um, Leslie Goodman's one. Have you read that? Meet me in the bathroom. Yeah, that's a, I haven't read I haven't read it, but I've seen looked through it. It looks really incredibly comprehensive and amazing. Yeah, because what I seen that as, and that's obviously I was I had Laura Jean Marsh on actually Laura Jean Marsh. Uh, she's great. She she's said, great. Yeah, she she said to me to tell you hi. Um, obviously I had her on, and I was telling her about the playlist on Spotify for her film. How I've been listening to that and drifting between that and the playlist for Lizzie Goodman's book. So those two books, I've got playlists and I'll smash them out every other day. So I'm going to compile a wee playlist for your book once it comes out and um, we'll get listening to that. That could rival those two playlists. Cool, cool. 
So, um, as uh, I'll post a wee link for your your book as well, the pre-order. Where can you pre-order it? Is it Amazon or is it on your website? On my website, the book is called The World is Going to Love This. And there's a whole section of my website for the book, including a pre-order link. Right. So I'll post that up and hopefully we'll boost your orders of that. Boost cool. your sales of the book. So the last bit of the podcast, obviously it's called Time for Heroes. And I ask you to pick as many heroes if you, as you want, if you can narrow it down. Um, okay. Four heroes to come for dinner and, and what you would cook them. Alive or dead, you'd say? Yes, dead or alive. Okay, okay, okay. Let's see. Um, off the top of my head, my first guest, I would have Jimi Hendrix over, and I would definitely um, cook some spaghetti. Right. Definitely. And let's see, who's my second? Can it be a painter or has to be a music artist? Oh, it can be anybody you want. It can be any walk of life. It's, okay. it's your heroes. Okay. Um, I would like to have uh, the the painter Hieronymus Bosch from right. the 1400s. I'd have him come over, and I think we would have some, um, let's see, curry sweet potatoes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what, what's, what's he famous for? What, what did he do? Uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights that hangs right. in, the, in the Prado Museum in, in Madrid. He made the strangest paintings, I think, of anybody in the human race. Very weird paintings. Right. Yeah. I'll check that out. Okay. Next person I would have come over. Let's see. Mm, I think I'd invite Wendy Carlos over for dinner. Um, she's a pioneer of the Moog synthesizer and a, a real incredible musician. She did the soundtrack of Clockwork Orange film, right. which is just jaw-dropping. And for her, I think we would have um, just a maybe Thai food with a papaya salad. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let's see, one more, one more on the list. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, I, my friend, Karina Bacher, who sang for a band called The Tempers. She lives in Seattle and she, her music is insane. And she's a wonderful singer. And I have her come over and we would have, I think, uh, vegetarian burritos. Right. So yeah. I'm going I'm to look up all these people as well and have a wee check them out as well and see all that food you're cooking are you cooking it yourself are you a good cook um i never cooked before but because of lockdown i learned how to cook and i can cook pretty well now um i get those box meals that have really specific menus and all the things you need but i'm i'm actually eating healthier than i ever have because usually i just eat at cafes and restaurants and i only eat when i'm hungry like just run to the cafe and get something to eat in between work so cooking has been really good for me. Oh, that's good. That that's that's pretty similar to myself. I seem to get turned into a master chef all of a sudden the last couple of years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um so I that that's us at the end, man. Thank you very much, Gordon, for 
for taking the time out of your day to, to speak to us. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, good luck with the book when it comes Thank out. You. And whatever else you've got coming up. Uh, and I thank you very much for coming on. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others, and more importantly, enjoy. Time for Heroes.